name and um, thank God for the you know conference thus far the previous sessions previous speakers and um, I'm going to be building up on some of the things that I know they must have said um, before now you know tonight I'm going to talk very briefly on what I've titled have faith in God have faith in God you know, I found out that most of the things in the Bible are very simple. Very, very simple, actually. Mark 11, the Lord Jesus is moving around with his disciples in verse 14. Jesus desired to eat from a fig tree, but there was no fruit on it, even though the leaves were green. And in verse 14, Jesus said nine words. No man eateth from thee henceforth and forever. And the Bible tells us the following day, the disciples took notice of it, that the fig tree with the master cursed are dried up to its roots, just like that. And so Jesus sought out the marvel. So in verse 22, he said to them, have faith in God. Let me tell your neighbor, say, have faith in God. God. Now, when you read that in the King James, it does not really tell you the real essence of what Jesus said, because what he really said was, have the faith of God. In other words, have the God kind of faith. Now, that's a tall order. If Jesus himself is telling you to have the faith of God, then the next question will be, how do we get it? Amazingly, you see, in this scenario, Jesus did not explain how to get the faith of God. He just actually explained how that faith will work. In verse 23, that's a verse of scripture that, you know, many of us used to think and they wrote. Because he quoted it all his life. Mark eleven twenty-three. verily I say unto you, he said, whosoever shall say to this mountain, be thou removed... And be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he says. Now, that does not really define how to get faith. That is basically explaining how that faith will work. And Jesus explains it very simply. He says the way faith works is you speak with your mouth and you believe in your heart. He says, whatever you say with your mouth and believe in your heart, if it is God's word and God's will, and we're going to get to that, he said, that thing will happen. Very, very simple, very, very basic. However, how does a man now get the faith of God? Thankfully, we see that later on in scriptures. Romans, the 10th chapter, and you see Paul speaking from verse 6. And Paul said to the, he was writing to the church at Rome. That was a church that had both Jews and then proselytes there. That is non-Jews that became believers. And so Paul is saying to them, the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend? That is to bring Christ up from above. Nor who shall descend? Did you see? That is to raise Christ again from the dead. Verse 8 of that same chapter, he says, but what saith it? He said, the word is nigh thee. Even in thy mouth and in thine heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Verse 10, he said, for it is with the heart that man believeth unto righteousness. And then with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Now when you read further in verse 13, he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He said, but how shall they call on him of whom they have not believed? How shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear except there be a preacher? By verse 17, he tells us the final analysis of it. He says, so then, in other words, in lieu of all these things, from verse 6, 
In verse 7, it says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing the word of God. In other words, he already makes it clear that the only way to get faith is by hearing. But it doesn't just stop there. It also tells us what you hear to bring faith. Not everything you hear is going to bring you faith. If you watch TV and listen to radio, you hear all kinds of things that will not even bring you faith. It would rather bring you more fear. So it tells us what we hear that brings faith is the word of God. Now, what word of God is he referring to? Remember verse 6, he said, Thou shalt not say in your heart, Who will ascend? That is to bring Christ from above. Or who shall descend? That is to bring him from the dead. What does that tell you? It speaks about the message that a man hears to bring faith is the message of Christ in how he came to this world, became man, that is God, became man, and died and had to be raised from the dead. So the message that imparts faith to the heart of man is the message about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. When that message is preached, the faith of God is released. That message is actually what is called the gospel. When you read in 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 1 to 4, Paul explains this gospel. He summarizes it there and he tells you it's about the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever it is preached, the faith of God, that is the God kind of faith, is imparted to the heart of a man. Now what that tells us again also is the fact that God does not demand faith. God actually imparts faith. God gives faith. Faith is a gift from God. Ephesians, the second chapter, the eighth verse, and then the ninth verse, you see Paul speaking there to the Ephesians, saying to them, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now that was Paul is saying to them, the grace by which you were saved, and the faith with which you laid hold of that, that salvation, which came by grace, is a gift from God. So God gifts to us faith. Romans the 12th chapter, the third verse, Paul is writing to the Romans and he says to them, I say to everyone that is among you, by the grace given unto me, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. He said, but to think soberly, even as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now the every man Paul is talking about is in the context. Because he's saying, I'm speaking to everyone among you. In other words, he's talking to believers. In other words, what it means is if you are born again, you already have the faith of God inside you. You couldn't possibly be born again and not have the faith of God because it is by that faith that the man gets saved. And I've told you how that faith came to you in the first place. It came when you heard the gospel. Let me even take it a little further. You see, it's important to take note of this because it helps us understand whether we are born again or not. You can't wait until the rapture to know whether you are born again. It will be too late. This is the time to check. Let me ask you, neighbor, are you sure whether you are saved or not? You know, I'm very passionate about soul winning. And so uh, we go out on the streets preaching to, G- uh, to Jesus to people. And I always say to our congregation in training people about how to win souls. And I say to them, when you see people on the streets, you ask them, are you born again? Many people will tell you yes. And they will give you all kinds of reasons. Some will say, because I was born in a Christian family. That's not what it means to be, to be saved. Some will say, you know, I have a Christian name. In fact, there are people whose names are Christian, but they are not born again. The only right explanation to that question of whether you are born again or how you got born again is that you heard the gospel and you believed the gospel. You remember Romans 8, 10? I mean, 10, 8 rather. 
you see, we're reading H10, I beg your pardon, how Paul was saying there earlier on, and he makes it clear to us, 1010, rather, I beg your pardon. And then he says that with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. The previous verse 9, he says that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe with your heart, and he tells you what to believe, that God raised him from the dead, then you are saved. If you have not believed in the resurrection of Christ, you are not saved. It's as simple as that. You are not saved. A, a man can actually, now altar call is good, but the altar call in itself is not what saves it is the message that was preached before the altar call. So I don't just say come to the altar without preaching the message of the gospel. And then you say, oh, well, since I came to the altar, I'm saved. The altar does not save people. It is the message that saves people. Romans 1.16, Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. So it's very clear. No matter what a person has done, maybe you've done a lot of good deeds. If you have not believed the message of the gospel, you are still not saved. In fact, you might have gone to a meeting where you received the miracle. That doesn't mean you are saved. Miracle is not salvation. As a matter of fact, miracle is the act of mercy of God that he does to everyone, saved or unsaved. All the people Jesus healed, did miracles for them in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, None of them were saved because Jesus had not gone to the cross. So miracles are acts of mercy. It is actually God sets, you know, sounding an alarm, trying to get your attention to come for the real deal. So that you receive the miracle in a crusade does not mean you are born again. God has just simply told you I'm very merciful and I have something more important for you. That more important thing is salvation, which is found only in the gospel. Second Timothy, the third chapter, the 15th verse, Paul is speaking to Timothy. And Paul says to Timothy, he said, From a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. So he says, the scriptures make you wise unto salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. You are not saved by believing in a church, even though you must belong to a church after you get saved. But it is not by believing in a church or belonging to a church that makes you saved. Many people go to church, but they are not yet born again. You get saved by believing this gospel message. It is not a myth. Jesus actually died. It's a reality. The word was made flesh. John 1, 14, dwelt among us and will be held his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy three sixteen, Paul said the same thing to Timothy. He said, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. How was God manifest in the flesh? When Jesus came. And what did he come to do? You know, he, he had a ministry of three years and a half. And all his life on earth altogether was 33 years and a half. But did you know there were many activities Jesus did? The first miracle in John chapter 2 at the marriage at Cana of Galilee. The Bible tells us they ran out of wine. John 2, 5, Mary said to them, whatever it tells you to do, do it. He provided wine for them. Now, that was one of the activities of Jesus, but that was not the real purpose for which Jesus came to the earth. He made it clear he came to this earth to lay down his life, to shed his blood for the remissions of the sins of the world. When John saw him, do you see, at the Jordan River, John 1, 29, John looked at him, even though they were cousins, but John saw him differently on that day. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God, we take it away the sins of the world. He didn't say, behold, my cousin, 
that we rejoice from the womb together. No, he said, this is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. That was his purpose, to take away our sins. That's what Jesus came for. Many even believe Jesus in a wrong way. Some say he's just a prophet. Well, Jesus Christ is not just a prophet. Did you know all the prophets that we see in scriptures? They all came and said, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Jesus never said, thus says the Lord. The reason is because he is the Lord. He is the Lord they talked about. So the Lord cannot say, thus says the Lord again. Did you see? So he is not just a prophet. Jesus is also not just a good man. Even though he was good. And we know he is still good. But he is not just a good man. He is our savior. He is the savior of the world. He died. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day. By the way, you know, even Jesus raised many people from the dead. But you see, the resurrection of Jesus I'm talking about is not the same as the miracle of raising the dead. You see, because in the miracle of raising the dead, people come back to the same life that they had before they died. And they come to complete it. But the resurrection of Jesus is resurrection to a new life. In Romans, the sixth chapter, the fourth verse, he said, like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also should walk in newness of life. That is the big difference there. So Jesus Christ rose again, Revelations 1, 18, on the island of Patmos, he said to John, I am he that was dead, but now I'm alive and forevermore. And I have the, the keys of hell and death. Now, nobody that received the miracle of, raising, of being raised from the dead has the key of hell and death. Only Jesus has it. I said, only Jesus has it. And that's why, you see, when you believe in that resurrection, you're born again. And that gives you rest. What is the rest I'm talking about? Rest about your eternal destination. God not only saved us, he gave us a seal of assurance and guarantee. You know what that seal is? It's called the Holy Ghost. It's called the Holy Ghost. Such that if you want to be sure whether you will make heaven, as many say it. Because it's not, heaven is not something you make. It's your home country already. You are not trying to be a Nigerian. You are already a Nigerian. You are already a citizen of your country by birth. So heaven is yours by birth. You don't have to try to make it. But this is how you know you are sure you are a citizen of heaven. The Holy Ghost inside you. The Holy Ghost inside you. Ask your neighbor for me, is the Holy Ghost inside you tonight? You know, in Romans the 8th chapter, Romans 8, 11, Paul writing said, If the spirit of he that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. Now, many times we use that scripture for healing. May not be wrong, but in its original context, Paul wasn't talking about healing. He's talking about what is called the rapture, what many call the rapture. The word rapture does not itself exist in the Bible. But the concept it describes is a reality. That Jesus will come someday and then will be changed. We'll not be caught up with him in the sky. Now, the right biblical word for it is actually that word resurrection. That is what Paul was talking about in Romans 8, 11. That when Jesus comes, what is going to happen to us is our bodies will be changed. Now, it is still the same body, but it will change it. Philippians 3.20 tells us that. Our citizen is from heaven above from whence we expect a savior Jesus who shall change our vile bodies to be fashioned like unto his own glorious body. Now that event is what is mostly described as rapture. But listen in Romans 8, 11, Paul is telling us this is the guarantee that you'll be part of those whose bodies will be changed. He said, if the Holy Ghost that raised Christ from the dead is in you, then you can rest assured. 
when Jesus comes, what that Holy Ghost did to Jesus' body at his resurrection, he will do to your body also. So tonight, I want to let you know if you have the Holy Ghost inside of you, rest. Let me tell anybody, say rest if you have the Holy Ghost. That's how we know who's going to be there. You know, we used to sing an, a hymn when we were growing up. When the role is called up yonder, I'll be there. There is no role in heaven. God doesn't need a role. His technology is far advanced than that. He is all-knowing. Paul said to Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. So he won't wait until that day to know. You had better also know before that day. See, because when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Ghost was given to you. He is inside you right now. Oh, and glory to God, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You see, when the writer of Hebrews was speaking in Hebrews 13 and the fifth verse, he said, then let your conversation, which is your manner of life, be without covetousness. He said, but be ye content with those things which ye have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he says, that is to make us bold to say, the Lord is my helper. I shall not fear what man can do unto me. So because he will never leave nor forsake, therefore there is no reason to be afraid. No reason to live in fear. Fear is not of God. Because especially at that point where you received that gift of salvation, don't forget, the gift of faith, that is faith, was given to you as a gift. So everyone who is born again, therefore, has that faith of God I'm talking about. It is impossible for a Christian to not have faith. So when I say a believer asking and saying, how can I get faith? My question to them is, are you born again? Because if you are born again, then you already have the faith of God. Because you couldn't have been born again without that faith. As you heard the gospel preached, the faith of God came into your heart. So the faith of God is received by the hearing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 and verse 5, Paul again speaking to the Galatians says, He therefore that ministered the spirit and worked miracles amongst you, he said, do it by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith. So when the gospel is preached, the hearing of faith is what happens. And that hearing of faith is actually how faith is transmitted to you. So if you are born again tonight, say after me, say, I have faith. I have faith. Say it again, say, I have faith. I have faith. Say, it is the God kind of faith. Say, it is the faith of God. Oh yes, it's the faith of God. And that should make you happy because whatever God has achieved with that faith, you can achieve with that faith. You know, that is the same faith God himself used in creating the earth. How did God make the world? In Genesis 1, we see God speaking. In Genesis 1, 3, God said. 1, 6, God said. 1, 9, God said. 1, 11, God said. 14, God said. And God kept speaking and speaking and speaking. What was he doing? He was doing exactly what Jesus described in Mark eleven twenty three. He said, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he says. It means when God said, let there be light, God believed it. And there was light. In fact, in the originals, what God said was, light be and light was. Now, you know, anybody can say light be. But you've got to believe in your heart that what you say will come to pass. It says, you shall not doubt in your heart. But believe that those things which you say shall come to pass. And he said, whosoever does this will have it. Now, that statement, whosoever, is a powerful statement Jesus made. And what he tells you right there is that faith will work for anyone. 
Faith will walk for anyone who has it. Faith, don't forget again, I repeat, will walk for anyone who has faith. Because whosoever is an equalizer, and that's what makes you even realize that faith is an equalizer. Faith brings everybody to the same level, gives everybody equal opportunities. And that's the reason why when Jesus spoke to the fig tree and it dried up, and the disciples asked him and said, wow, the fig tree you cost has dried up. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, that's only for deities. It's not for you earthlings. He didn't say that. His response was, whosoever. And I always like to say to people, whosoever means you so ever. Whosoever means me so ever. Whosoever means I can do it too. Whosoever means I can also practice it and it will work. Because as a matter of fact, faith is a law. And that's why it's going to work for anyone. A law is a, a set of predictable, or sorry, principles that have predictable outcomes. I repeat it, a law is a set of principles that have predictable outcomes. It means if you try it in this place, it's going to work. If you take it somewhere else, it's going to work there as well. If a man does it, it's going to work for him. If a woman does it, it's going to work for her. So it's a law, Romans 3.27. He said, where is boasting then? It is excluded. He said, by what law? He said, is it the law of faith? I mean, is it by, he said, by the law. He said, no. He said, but by the law of faith. So he tells you in Romans 3.27 that faith is a law. A law that if you use it the way it should be used, you will get the results you are supposed to get. So Jesus said, whosoever shall say to this mountain. So you see, he tells you there are about three components of faith. The first component of faith there is that you speak. Is that you say something. The second component of faith there is that you believe. Is that you believe. The third component there is that you hear something. You hear something. Because for you to believe something is because you first of all had it. And then you hear something, you believe what you heard, and then you must also now begin to say what you believed. I'll take it again. The components of faith, you must hear. You must hear. The second component is you must believe. The third component is that you say what you believe. Second Corinthians 4 and verse 13, we also have in the same spirit of faith, according as it's written, I believe, therefore have I spoken. He said, we also believe, and therefore we speak. Now, where do we get what we believe from? We get it from what we heard. Did you see that? What we heard is what we believe. While Peter yet spake, Acts 10, 44, the Holy Ghost fell on all those who heard him. So it means as they were listening to Peter, faith was communicated. Faith was imparted. Now, in the house of Cornelius that I quoted to you just now, what was Peter preaching? The gospel. The previous verse, verse 43, he said to him that he's talking about Jesus, all the prophets give witness that whosoever believeth in him should receive remission of sins. The word remission is from the Greek word aphasis. Aphasis actually means deliverance. It means to set free. Set free from what? From sin. From the power of darkness. Colossians 1.13, he said, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and he has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So it means when Jesus died on the cross, he secured deliverance for us from sin. In fact, that deliverance is actually what forgiveness is about. Because when I forgive you, I've delivered you from the offense. So that is what Peter preached in the house of Cornelius. When he preached it, they heard it, they believed it, and therefore the Holy Ghost fell on them. Now, the Holy Ghost cannot be in you if you are not a person who has believed the gospel. 
Because in John 7, 37, 38, 39, Jesus is preaching on the last day of the feast, cried with a loud voice and said, If any man thirst, let him come and drink. He said, He that believed in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, he said, This spake he of the Spirit, which those who believe in him should receive. He said, For the Holy Ghost had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. So it means they, they received the Holy Ghost in the house of Cornelius when they believed what they heard. So don't forget those three components of faith. You hear, then you believe, and then you speak. And it is very important. The believing part is what I'm going to really deal with tonight. Because that is a very vital part of the faith equation. You must believe, and you must believe right. You must believe, and you must believe right. Let me tell you, say you must believe. Oh, come on, you didn't say like your voice is yours. Say you must believe. If I ask your neighbor, say, is this voice your own or did you borrow it? Say, use it very well since it is your voice. So tell them again, say, you must believe. You must believe. And you must believe correctly. You know, one of the things about what we believe is that it becomes thoughts in our hearts. When you believe something, it becomes a dominant thought in your heart. Let me say to you tonight, whatever is the dominant thought of your heart is really what you believe in life. Whatever dominates your thoughts the most, that is what you really believe in life. And I'll say this to you tonight, thoughts are very loud in the spirit. Thoughts are very, very loud in the spirit. In Psalm 139 verse 2, David is speaking and he said, Thou knowest my thoughts even from afar off. Your thoughts are so loud, God can hear it from a distance. Even from a distance, God can hear it. I'll show you a few examples in the Bible. Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, the Bible says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Notice, while he was thinking, the angel responded. The thoughts were loud enough. Now, when you read the rest of the verses here, you will notice Joseph is thinking in this way because of what he believed. He believed in the law of Moses. If a woman is caught in sexual immorality, she was to be stoned. So he knows the law, but he is now, because he's a good man and he loves this lady, he's trying to shield and protect her. So notice his thoughts reflected what he believed in. So whatever are your dominant thoughts... They are indicative of what you really believe. You also see in Acts 10, 19, Apostle Peter had, he fell into a trance. And the Bible says in verse 19, while Peter thought on the vision, the spirit said unto him, behold, three men seek thee. While he thought on the vision, the Holy Ghost spoke to him. Because the Holy Ghost can hear what you're thinking. And so in Proverbs 4, 23, the Bible tells us to keep your heart with all diligence. Because that is where your thoughts are. Don't forget in Romans 10.10. 10, it is with the heart that man believeth. It is with the heart that man believeth. You know the reason why many Christians don't seem to be walking by faith. Is because now that you are born again. You have left your heart unguarded. You have left your heart unprotected. Your heart is a place where all kinds and manner of things come in. And let me say to you. What contaminates the heart the most are thoughts. 
Thoughts. Thoughts unchecked. Thoughts uncensored. When you allow different kinds of thoughts to settle in your heart, your faith walk will be affected. In Romans 10, 6, I quoted earlier, it says, The righteousness which is of faith, speaketh on this wise, say not in your heart. So it means there are things that you are saying inside your heart. Your thoughts are actually the accumulation of conversations going in. There are going on rather. There are inner conversations going on. In Isaiah 29, verse 13, we see that God sees the heart. He said, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as these people draw near with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, he said, But have removed their heart far from me. In Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, the Bible tells us the heart of man, my God, is deceitful above all things and is desperately wicked. He said, who can know it? Let me talk to the person sitting next. He said, how is this your heart? How is your heart? Uh, you got to say kindly, say, beloved, how is your heart? How's the state of your heart? Let me, let me throw in something important here. You see, God is responsible for the nature of your heart at salvation. But you are responsible for the condition of your heart per time. I'll repeat it again. God is responsible for the nature of your heart at the point of salvation. Romans 5, 5, hope makes not ashamed. The love of God is shed abroad our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So it means that when you receive Jesus, there is a new nature. We'll be made partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1, 4. And that nature is the love nature. The love nature. But you see, nature and condition are not the same. Whilst God is responsible for the nature of the heart of man at salvation, man, that is the believer in Christ, is responsible for the condition of that heart per time. And sometimes because of what we expose ourselves to, because of the activities, the things we do, because of the things we say, because of the things we're listening to, the condition of that heart is not in its right frame. And those are the things you've got to be careful for. In Matthew 9, 4, the Lord Jesus Christ knew the thoughts of people. You see Jesus knew people's thoughts. Luke 5, 22, Luke 6, 8, Luke 9, 47. You see the Lord Jesus knew the thoughts of people's heart. Luke 24, 38, he knew their thoughts. So you see God knows your thoughts. And your thoughts affect your heart. That is why Jesus is particular about what you're thinking. That is why God is particular about what you're thinking. The thoughts you allow will either enhance your faith walk... Or cripple your faith walk. And that's why we must be careful. In Acts 8, in the city of Samaria, there was a guy there called Simon the sorcerer. The word sorcerer actually is from a Greek word magus. It means a magician. So the real meaning is Simon the magician. And you see, this guy had bewitched the entire city. And he projected himself as though he was some great power of God. But the Bible tells us when Philip came to Samaria, Acts 8, 8, he preached to them. There was great joy in the city and he performed many miracles. The people saw it. And then even Simon the sorcerer himself began to follow him. But not because his heart was right. He was only jealous because, you know, Philip had stolen his crowd. And so he was looking for a way. He was trying to find out what's the secret. So when Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the gospel, they sent Peter and John, who when they had come, laid their hands on them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money and said to Peter, which was the biggest mistake of his life, he said, take this money and give me this power. So that upon whosoever I lay my hands, they will also receive the Holy Ghost. Peter looks at him and responds and says, your money perish with thee. Because you have thought the gift of God can be purchased with money. 
And that's one thing you must understand. We cannot buy the things of God with money. We don't purchase the anointing with money. We don't purchase miracles with money. Did you see this? We can honor the things of God with our substance. We must honor the things of God, but never with a transactional mindset. Never with a transactional mindset. Are you listening to what I'm saying tonight? So Peter says to him, your money perish within. The original Greek, he said, your money perish and you too. That was very blunt of Apostle Peter. But it was not just a blunt statement. It was a prophetic apostolic declaration. So heavy on the man, the man said, please pray for me that these things you have said will not happen to me. Because he knows Peter has a track record. Acts 5 and announced that Sapphira just fell dead. So he said, please, please, before I fall down and die, please try and do something for me. Well, when you read Bible history, that guy never repented. He became the father of people called the Gnostics. He went ahead and started a movement of his own. You see, because his heart was not right. Peter said that much. You read in verse 18. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. Let's keep to verse 20. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter. He says, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. So God is always checking your heart. God is always checking your heart. If you're listening to me tonight, God is looking at your heart. And you see, you must also pay attention to your heart at all times. You know, one of the things that you must always pay attention to in your heart is pay attention to your love walk. You've got to walk in love. Because faith walketh by love. Faith walketh by love. Love walketh no ill to his neighbor. It's the royal law, James 2. Did you see? It's a law of the spirit to walk in love. To walk in love. You know, the hallmark of walking in love is forgiveness. The kind that God gave us in Christ. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the 32nd verse. And you see Paul saying to the Ephesians, he says, be ye tender-hearted, kind to one another. He said, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. How did God forgive us? God forgave us in advance. Romans 5, 8. He said, for God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he tells you there that the way to walk in love is to forgive because he continues in chapter 5 as 1. Originally, the Bible was not chapterized. Did you see? It was a letter. How many of you write letters to people and then you say chapter 1? Nobody does that. Did you see? These were letters of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. But it was chapterized in a right, which was the right thing to do for the sake of easy study. So, but sometimes you got to learn to remove those chapters so you don't disconnect the thoughts of the writer. So, after telling us in verse 32, be ye kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake had forgiven you, he goes on in chapter 5 as 1. He says, be ye imitators of God as dear children. And then he tells us what to imitate in verse 2. And walk in love. Even as Christ loved us and gave himself a sacrifice. Did you see? So you understand, Paul is saying, the hallmark of the love walk is to forgive. So you got to check your heart all the time. Am I walking in forgiveness? Or I hold things and I hold people to myself. I don't let people go. You know, let me say to you for one, there is nothing anybody will do against you or do to you that will be bigger than what Jesus has done for you. Nothing. He died for you. He gave his life. He shared his blood, offered himself for you, made himself of no reputation. Philippians 2 from verse 5 to 9. Became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. In case you don't know what it means, 
The death Jesus died was a criminal's death. Let me help you paint the picture well. Jesus died naked. In case you don't know, the movies can't show that. Otherwise, we'll be X-rated. Are you seeing this? They stripped him naked. He died as a common criminal. He said, cost is everyone that anget on the tree. Galatians 3.13. That was the kind of death Jesus died. And for a person that knew no sin, to go to that level of humiliation, for you, nothing anybody would do against you would be as big as that. So whenever the devil is trying to make a big deal of the wrong people have done to you, you make a bigger deal of what Jesus has done for you. Is somebody hear what I'm saying? Because we got to walk in love. We got to walk in love. If we do not walk in love, we expose ourselves to the enemy. If we do not walk in love, we cripple ourselves in faith. We must. It's not negotiable. You cannot not walk in love. If you still want to be a Christian, you cannot not walk in love. The Lord Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty five, when you stand praying, if you have ought against any, forgive. You know what that tells you? And sometimes I think some Christians, that's why they don't like to stand to pray. Because Jesus said, when you stand praying, forgive. So since they don't want to forgive, they sit down praying. So I, I'm not going to stand to pray this prayer because I don't want to forgive. Every time they will say, stand and pray. <laughs> Did you see that? So we've got to walk in love. You know, one of the ways I, I keep an eye on my love walk, of course, is, you know, I understand and admit the fact that walking in love is not natural. You need the help of God. Oh, but the help is already available. Oh, I said the help is already available. Yeah. Romans 5, 5 says that love is already shed abroad our heart by the Holy Ghost. And then there is this prayer that we call Pauline prayer that we pray. Philippians chapter 1 from verse 9. This I pray that your love will abound yet more and more in all knowledge and in all judgment. That you may approve the things that are excellent and that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that the kind of picture you want your life to be like? Sincere, without offense. Your heart is as pure as the heart of a child. No weight. You see, unforgiveness is a weight. It's a burden. It won't let you travel light and far and fast. So sometimes when you feel like they hurt me so badly, I can't, I can't, I can't forgive. Don't say that. That's a lie. A child of God who is saying I cannot forgive is telling I. You are not saying that you can forgive. I can forgive. You've got to learn in advance. You know, many, many years ago when I started in the ministry pastoring, over 17 years ago, I remember I had these confessions I pasted on my door in my staff quarters where I was living in OAU Ife. And I'll never forget, one of the things I put there is I always confess every day. I forgive in advance anyone and for anything. In advance. In advance. So I make it a declaration. It's my confession of faith. I forgive in advance. I forgive in advance. Because you see, the forgiveness in Christ is advanced forgiveness. You were not born when Jesus died on the cross. You were born into this life and you met forgiveness in Christ. Oh, no wonder David said in Psalm 130, he said, For there is forgiveness we did that thou mayest be feared. You know, because when they quote that scripture, when we're growing up, they always quote it as though it ended in that verse 3. And then they will say, if thou, Lord, shall mark iniquity, who can stand? It was a question, but there was an answer in the next verse. And the answer is that there is forgiveness with you, so that thou mayest be feared. In other words, he's saying, look, God is not counting sins. Second Corinthians 5.19, to which that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins against them. 
If I case that King James is blind to us, some modern translations help you understand it better, particularly the Amplified. The literal Greek, what it really says is God was in Christ, present himself in Christ, not counting sins against men, but canceling sins. If God should count sin, nobody will make it. Let me tell say, including you. Nobody's going to make it. You can't be that good enough. Galatians 3.11, he said that no man is justified by the deeds of the law before God. It is evident. God says it's very evident. It's very clear. Nobody's going to make it. He said, but the just shall live by faith. Romans 3.20 repeats the same thing. That in the sight of God, no flesh can be justified by the works of the law. None. But we are justified by putting faith in what Jesus did. And what did he do? He forgave us. So we've got to walk in love. Not walking in love affects the heart. When a person doesn't walk in love, all manner of evil thoughts begin to build up against the people you're angry at. That cripples your faith. That cripples your faith. And you see, one of the things that will do to you is that it brings in two things I want to show you as I begin to get, you know, to round up. Two things I want to show you. Doubt and unbelief. Two things that can happen to the heart of a Christian and render their faith walk powerless. Doubt and unbelief. You know, I won't go into the, the, the parable. You'll find it in three of the Gospels. Matthew 13, Luke 8, and Mark 4. The parable of the seed and the sower. Jesus in that parable showed us four different types of grounds. And by the way, you need to understand the meaning of every parable Jesus told is with Jesus himself. Jesus told the meaning of all his parables. You can never take the parable of Jesus and give it your own meaning. It will never be correct. The parables of Jesus, you see, because a parable is a fictitious story. It is not something that really happened. It is like an illustration you make up in order to buttress a point. So it's like you just imagine something, you know, you create some fictitious characters for the sake of bringing a reality to your audience. So if I'm the one that created the fictitious character and I gave it a role, I am the only one that will know the meaning of all those roles. So when Jesus told this parable, number one, he lets us realize this parable is about the kingdom. And what he means by kingdom is salvation, the family of God. And he tells us clearly, Mark 4, 14, the sower soweth the word. Did you see this? Luke 8 and verse 10, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Very, very clear. He didn't make any ambiguity about it. He says, this seed I've been talking about is the word of God. And the hearts of men are those four different gowns. Now, you see, of those four hearts, if you remember, it tells us the first one fell by the wayside because it had no roots in it. When it was sown, as quickly as it was sown, the birds of the air came and stole it and took it off. Now, of course, you understand, Jesus himself explained in that parable, he said that is the devil coming to steal the word from that guy. It means that is the kind of heart that never received the gospel of Jesus. That one is actually outright unbelief. He is not saved at all. That one, there was no root. You see, because when you're born again, you are rooted. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, verse 7, rooted and built up in him, even as you have been taught. 
And so you understand, therefore, he says that one had no root. The second one also fell, do you see, upon the rocks, having no root as well. And then he died. That also is not saved. The third one is actually the one who is saved. And the fourth one. But you see, the problem with the third one is that even though it has roots, but the Bible says that the thorns choked it. And Jesus told us what the thorns are. He says, the cares of this life, they choke that seed. So that even though it has taken root, it is not growing. Many other thoughts, because the cares of life come as thoughts. What I'm going to eat, what I'm going to wear, anxiety. You know, Matthew 6, Jesus taught a very good teaching on worry and anxiety. Paul came and summarized it in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 and said, Be anxious for nothing. He said, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known unto God. In other words, instead of you getting anxious about the things about your life, the cares of this life, rather you should pray and talk to God about it and leave it there with God. For he cares for you. He cares for you. Did you see this? So the cares of this life, choke it. Now, what the cares of this life do to a person or does to a person's heart is that they actually bring you to a state of doubt. And I'm going to show you the difference between doubt and unbelief. Unbelief, on one hand, is simply outright rebellion against God. I'll repeat that. Unbelief is simply outright rebellion. That's why it is called unbelief. It simply means God says something and I look at him straight in the eye and say, you know what? I don't take what you're saying. I don't believe you. Go away with your word. I don't want it. And you will see this was the life of the Israelites that came out of Egypt, that generation. And I'll show you very quickly a few things about them. But take this down first of all. The parable of the seed and the sower, don't forget. The first two grounds that had no root represent unbelief. The third ground represents doubt. Now, you notice in Hebrews 3.12, we see how unbelief is outright evil and rebellion against God. He said, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in depression from the living God. This is outright rebellion. Saying to God, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with this thing you're saying. That is the condition of a man that you preach to and he tells you, I don't want it. I don't want to be saved. I don't believe Jesus is Lord. I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. As far as I'm concerned, he was a good man, good prophet. But all this resurrection thing you're talking about, forget about it. I don't want it. That's unbelief. Do you know that unbelief is why people go to hell? People don't go to hell because they stole. Oh no. All those ones are forgiven. But when you don't receive the gift of salvation in Christ, then you have forfeited the forgiveness of every other act of sin. That's why people go to hell. John 3, 16, 17, and 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world, verse 17, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18 says, he that believeth on him, did you see that? Is not condemned. But he that believeth not on him, did you see this? Is condemned already for one reason. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. It's like God saying, how dare you? That's the way it is to God. How dare you? I've done everything for you and yet you reject it. Because there is no salvation in any other. Acts 4.12. For there is no other name given amongst men by which you must be saved. Other than the name of Jesus Christ. If you reject that one, you are doomed. In fact, Mark 16 and verse 15 and 16. Jesus said it with his own words. 
He said, he said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Verse 16, he that believeth not shall be damned. So the condemnation of men is that they reject the gift of God, which is what is called unbelief. And we see a type of it in the Israelites. In Hebrews 3, verse 7 to 10, you will see how the Bible describes it as being hardened. It's the same thing. It's unbelief. He said, wherefore, as the Holy Ghost said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. In the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. Again, you see, testament to it, miracles don't save people. They saw miracles for 40 years. 40 years of miracles didn't change their life. It's very clear. 40 years of constant miraculous signs and wonders. Their hearts were still hardened. Even the disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus told them one day, he said, beware of the, Phari- the living of the Pharisees. And he was speaking proverbially. And next thing, what their minds went to was, maybe we didn't carry enough bread. Jesus was so angry. He said, ah, ah. He said, have you easily, quickly forgotten the miracle of the five loaves and the two fish? How can you still be thinking of insufficiency of bread? The same bread? Because miracles don't convert people. Miracles will draw them. And when they are drawn, you must preach the word that converts people. It is the word that converts people. It's the word that converts people. That's why after you get saved, you must be planted in a local church and be discipled. That process of conversion is discipleship. You're being taught you know, you receive some hard knocks here and there. Rebukes, corrections. You see, the word of God will confront you, confront your pride, your ego, your idiosyncrasies. It will steer. And you see, one thing about the word of God is very stubborn. It doesn't back down for you. It will tell you, you will change. I'm not going to bow to you. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The things I used to do, I do them no more. The things I used to say, I say them no more. The places I used to go, I go there no more. That is Christianity. And I want to say this very clearly to you. You see, one thing about being a born again Christian is this discipleship is actually where our lives are transformed. And as much as the truth is that God has forgiven all our sins, forgiveness actually empowers you to now begin to say no to sin. The story of David is a story of grace. But did you notice David didn't go back to adultery? Have you noticed that? Because something will change inside of you when you submit yourself to the word of God. It will force all those idiosyncrasies to bow down to the lordship of God's word. And I tell you, if you are going to live the life of faith, you must see the word of God as final authority. What the word says is final. Even if I'm still struggling with it, it is still final. Let me tell somebody like you believe it. Say the word is final. It's final. Oh, I, I wish you can speak like your voice is yours. Say the word is final. It's fine. After the word has spoken, no other opinion. Any alternative to the written word of God is from hell. You know, have you heard people say things like, I know the Bible says so and so, but let's face reality. We don't have another reality. This word is our reality. Hey, I said this word is our reality. This word is my reality. Oh, yes. And so he says to them in verse 9, Hebrews 3, 
When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years, verse 10, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart. Did you see that? In their heart. In their heart. And they have not known my ways. If you read Psalm 103, you see how David wrote about Moses there. He said, God showed his ways to Moses, but the Israelites only knew his acts. So if you are only seeking miracles, you know the acts of God. But knowing the acts of God does not mean you know his ways. His ways are in his word. Did you see this? Another thing about unbelief, unbelief is very costly. It has grave and fatal consequences. Hebrews 3, 18 to 19. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. That's the generation that died in the wilderness and never made it to the promised land. God told them, I'm going to give the promised land to you. Numbers 13, they sent 12 spies. 10 came back with an evil report. The evil report was so much that when they said all those evil things, they were speaking by a demonic anointing because 3 million people began to cry by the words of 10 men. But the Bible says Caleb and Joshua had a different spirit. It's the spirit of faith. It kept them alive for 45 more years. Those 10 spies died that day. Read your Bible, you see it in Numbers 13. They all died, 10 of them. They all died. And God said to them, everyone who believed you, they will all die too in the wilderness. Except for their children that are under 20. So they condemned an entire generation to death because of their unbelief. Now that is a type because the way they couldn't make it into the promised land because of their unbelief is the same way many never make it into Christ because of their what? Their unbelief. Because all God will ever give you is his word. That's all God's going to give you. You doubt it and you are without. You believe it and then you receive it. God has nothing more to say to you. Everything he said to the Israelites, he was just saying words to them. I will do so and so. When he met Abraham in Genesis 12, he said, get you out of your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make your name great. God didn't do anything other than just saying it. Saying it. Saying it. Saying it. Saying it. And anytime he speaks, he's looking for somebody crazy enough to believe. Wigglesworth said, faith will make God skip over a million people and pay attention to one man who believes. After all, there was a crowd in Mark 5. And everybody was touching Jesus, making body contact, and nothing happened to them. But there was one woman from verse 25 who was suffering from the issue of blood. For she had said in in herself, and noted before she said in herself, she heard about Jesus. What she heard about Jesus is what determined what she did towards Jesus. And so she said in herself, if I'm able to touch his clothes, I shall be made whole. The anointing has his own intelligence. Jesus didn't need to know. Jesus didn't need to know. The anointing, the power of God, all the resources of heaven responds to faith. Even when the carrier of the grace is unaware. Jesus didn't know her. He had no appointment. But she came and said, if I touch him. And when, he, when she touched him, the Bible says, immediately, the fountain of the blood dried up. She's been suffering this for 12 years. She spent all her, all, her, all her living on doctors and she got nothing better but grew worse. But in that moment where she made contact by her faith, because everything she said to herself before she came there, that was her faith speaking. And then she gave corresponding action. And Jesus felt it. Bible says Jesus said, power, virtue. The word virtue there is, is dunamis. Power has gone out of me. He didn't know who pulled it, but he knew when the power left. Because there were many touches on that day. Most of the touches there were touches of curiosity and some of them were touches of accident. 
Many brushed in by accident. Some came curiously. Let me even feel the texture of his clothes. What's the texture of that kaftan that safari is wearing? You see, the thought of curiosity is not faith. He gets nothing. But when faith is moving, heaven pays attention. Heaven pays attention. Heaven pays attention. So unbelief is rebellion against God. And it is really dealt with severely. Is dealt with severely. But doubt on the other hand. What is doubt? Doubt is actually to waver. And that is the issue with many Christians. Doubt. Now that you are born again, there is still doubt you are dealing with. Matthew 21, 21, Jesus said unto them, If you have faith and doubt not, many times I've realized, your faith is enough. It is your doubt that is too much. They asked him and said, Lord, increase our faith. (laughs) Jesus didn't say, I'll give you 10 more. No. He said, use it. The solution to your feeling like your faith is insufficient is that you need to use the faith you have. And he responded to them, if you have faith like a mustard seed, what do you do with the seed? You plant it. When you plant it, then you get more. So the answer to my faith is too small is what? Use the faith you have. Use the faith you have. Use the faith you have. Tomorrow I'm going to continue on the mainland and I will speak more about this. How do you turn your faith loose? How do you move out of doubt? Because doubt can be dealt with. Oh yes, doubt can be dealt with. And my prayer for you tonight is that God is going to help you overcome every doubt you are struggling with. Because doubt is wavering. Doubt is that you believe God. And then after believing God, some other thoughts now rose. And that's that third ground. The cares of this life, they arise. And then he's looking at those alternatives and he's looking at God's word again. He's looking at those alternatives. He's looking at God's word again. That's the meaning of doubt. God will always help a man if he wants to be helped. Stand to your feet. I'm going to close with that tonight. But doubt can be dealt with. You got to be like Abraham. He staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. He considered not his own body now dead, nor the deadness of Sarah's. In case you don't know when the Bible says his body was now dead, that was a very Bible, scriptural English way of saying impotent. So it means if you will not live in doubt, there will be contradictions, but you must look away from them. Because your mind is your mind. You, 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 you mustn't be forced to think what you don't want to think. You can choose what you are going to think. No force outside should control your mind. Tomorrow I'm going to speak on how that there are thoughts that are not mere thoughts. There are some thoughts that are actually demons in disguise. You're just, you're just going about your day, you're happy. Suddenly, you just begin to feel sad. That's not normal. That's the time to open your mouth and take that thought captive and throw it down and slam it down. And say, this is not me thinking. I do joy all the days of my life. I don't do sadness. I don't do depression. I do joy. Joy is not just a feeling. It's a fruit of the reborn spirit. You've got to do it. Rejoice simply means do joy. That's the meaning of rejoice. When the Bible says rejoice, it means do joy. It means it's something you do. Like shouting, like jumping, like running, like screaming, like singing. Somebody rejoice tonight.